Well, amen. Thank you, Kelsey. Beautiful song, beautiful job. You glad to be here tonight? Amen, I am. Um, honestly, I, I didn't think I would ever get back up here. It's the last time I was up here, I kind of made an awful gesture to everyone and you know, but there were uh, there were three things I promised Brother John uh, as as you know he was leaving. Um, I promised him that should I do it? No, I, that I wouldn't make. I've learned. I've learned that I wouldn't make awful gestures to anyone. That I wouldn't set any dates. See, I'm going backwards now. So I've learned how to count. I wouldn't make awful gestures, I wouldn't set any dates, and I wouldn't let everyone know who the Antichrist was tonight. So, let's see if we can go three for three. But honestly, I'm not at all worried after he hears uh, that Brother Bobby was cursing in the morning service. <laughs> I think it's fair game. I can honestly do what I want to do tonight. Oh, turn with me to Revelation 13. We're going to, uh, instead of getting off track, we'll uh, continue our study tonight in Revelation we're in chapter 13, and um, we start with sharing with you two things and two things more. First of all, God is God, and you're not. And isn't that a good thing? Uh, secondly, things aren't always as bad as they seem, and things aren't always as good as they seem. And so we'll kind of pick those two things apart tonight, and we'll, that will help us uh, understand what's going on behind the scenes in Revelation chapter 13. But let me give you a good example in my life uh, of, of two of those. Things aren't always as bad as they seem, and things aren't always as good as they seem. Uh, when I was a sophomore, second year, uh, in Baptist Bible College, Springfield, Missouri, um, we, my roommate and I shared a bathroom with to a, another room. So there were two rooms that adjoined, that were adjoined uh, in the dorms, these dorms by a bathroom. It was better to share it with just three other guys than, you know, the whole dorm, uh, as was my freshman year, and that was really fun. But um, one weekend, my roommate's parents came to visit, and our do- sweet mates, I guess you would call them, uh, they conjured up uh, a prank for the ages. All right, so uh, the, his parents came, came in the room, wanted to take the tour, and so we were showing, her, showing them the room, and then they also took them into the bathroom because they wanted to see the bathroom. I don't know why, but they did. And as they were entering the bathroom, uh, they had it all planned and timed right, so one of our suite mates was in the bathroom at that time looking into the toilet at a baby Ruth candy bar, mind you, uh, a baby Ruth that they had strategically placed in the toilet, okay, and said something to them, oh, I left that here, didn't I? Picked it up and began to eat it and just went on his way, not saying a word or doing anything. So, things aren't always as bad as they seem. Secondly, Peruvian wedding cake. Peruvian wedding cake is is perhaps the most beautiful, luxurious cake you will have ever seen in your life. 
they decorate it nicely. It's it's you know it's 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 white white for the icing and all pretty pretty pretty. And so you would, you know, you, you look at it and you start to salivate and man, I can't wait for them to cut this thing and let's get going. So you, you're excited about the reception. If it's your first time to eat Peruvian wedding cake, you're you're excited. And boy, once they cut that thing, it is as dry as a Texas cactus. Of course, Texas cactus aren't necessarily dry on the inside. Um, That's not a good example. But so dry, 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 you can hardly get your mouth around it, and it's so disgusting. So things aren't always as good as they seem either. So just keep those things in the back of your mind as we work our way through chapter 13 tonight. Chapters 12 through 15, uh, it's kind of a, a section of the book of Revelation, John's Revelation. It, those chapters comprise one long scene that reveals the underlying reasons for all the events that we've seen already portrayed by the seals and the trumpets. Now that scene in through chapters 12 through 15 revolves around seven major characters. We were introduced to five of them a couple of weeks ago in chapter 12. Tonight we'll be introduced to the other two, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. We will see those here in chapter 13. Now in our study of chapter 12, you'll remember, we were given a look through the eyes of John at a great cosmic supernatural battle which has been going on behind the scenes for ages and continues on through the tribulation period. We know that Satan and his demons have already lost one major battle in heaven with God and were permanently cast out of heaven to the earth. Knowing that his time is short, Satan, and having been thwarted in his attempts to prevent the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, he will turn his attention first to Israel and then to the church. Now in chapter 13... We get to see the means by which he is going to operate. And he is going to set this plan for this war against Israel and the church in motion. And by doing so, Satan forms what, what I call and many have called an unholy trinity with two horrific beasts for the purpose of waging this war against the followers of Jesus. So we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 13. And we get introduced to the first, or actually the second, two weeks ago we were introduced to the first part of this unholy trinity, the dragon, which we know is Satan himself. Uh, First in verses 1 through 10, we will be introduced to the second part of this unholy trinity, the first beast, which is more commonly known as the Antichrist. And by the way, I... Uh, we had uh, we have a study guide for tonight. Some of the some of you found them in the back. Some of you were handed one, but if you did not get one, please raise your hand. And if, do we have a few more? Are we completely out? Oh, me of little faith! Wow, I didn't print enough. So, if you didn't get one, things aren't always as bad as they seem. Okay. All right. So we're introduced first of all in verses one through ten. To the beast from the sea, or most commonly known as the Antichrist. So let's read 1 through 10 real quickly. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his ten, 
and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head's a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Sounds a whole lot like three and a half years to me. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So we're introduced to the beast from the sea. And let's look real quickly at what I would just quite simply call his ancestry. Or where did he come from? Where does this beast come from? Verse 1 tells us, John tells us, that he, that he looked and he saw the beast come out of the sea. The beast came out of the sea, or quite literally translated means from the masses. It, it, it came from the masses. Now, the first thing we see about the beast is that he comes from the masses. Now, throughout Scripture, the sea is often a picture of mankind or humanity or literally from the masses. And particularly in this instance, they would think of the Gentile nations. We certainly see that also in Daniel chapter 7. And here's just a a little side note. Um, I'd invite you to to go home tonight or sometime this week and read Daniel chapter 7 uh, in its entirety. And it'll help you kind of put together um, everything that we're unwrapping as far as the beast, the beast from the sea and the earth. Uh, so that, that, that will help you understand it a little bit better, but we just don't have time to go into it in detail. But so we see that in Daniel 7, where the four beasts that Daniel talks about in chapter 7, they come from the sea, and they represent the Gentile nations who will rule over Israel. Now, kind of take it further, in the ancient world, the people also associated the sea with chaos or evil and use the term sea as a figure for uh, what, we, what Bobby introduced us to, the abyss this morning. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise that the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, uh, will, will rise to power in the midst of a time of chaos. We have several examples throughout history that serve as a picture of this. Uh, probably the, the most well-known in my mind would be Adolf Hitler in Germany. In the midst of the chaos following World War I, the people of Germany in particular were, were, were facing hunger, desperation, hopelessness, and were searching for a leader who could bring them out of this desperate situation and create some kind of order out of their chaos. Well, Hitler fit that bill. He didn't need to take power by force because the people willingly yielded it to him. And we see what happened. And so it's easy to imagine how in the midst of chaos, we're right in the middle of the tribulation, uh, Satan 
is declaring war on the church and in Israel and the children of Israel, um, or not the children of Israel, but, but those Christ followers at that time. Now, it's easy to imagine how in the midst of all this chaos, um, the, resent, uh, you know, the resulting, uh, the results from the seals and the judgments and everything, that the world will willingly give power in the midst of all this, to someone who comes on the scene and can bring order out of all this chaos. So this beast literally comes from the masses and out of the midst of chaos comes onto the scene and will provide hope in the midst of all this chaos. And so we also see um, here in verse 1, 1 and verse 2, that he's a little similar we see some similarities to the dragon of chapter 12. Like the dragon of chapter 12, this beast also has seven heads and ten horns. However, there are some differences there. The beast has diadems on its horns, while the dragon had diadems on his heads. Um, I think more than anything, it's to, to relate that the dragon and the beast are not necessarily the same creature, but they are related. Okay, there's ten heads, uh, there's, there's diadem, all these similarities, but they're different. And how are they different? And that's what we're going to get into tonight. Uh, so let's look at the attributes. You know, John says that this beast has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, a blasphemous name. So first of all, looking at his attributes... Um, Let's see that he represents both a kingdom and its leader. Both a kingdom and its leader. Now, in chapter 17, Revelation, we're given some further insight as to what the horns and the heads of the beast symbolize. Now, we'll look at that, I'm sure, in much more detail when we get there. But for now, let's just focus on how they help us understand what we're reading here in chapter 10, uh, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, I'm sorry. So in Revelation 17, uh, we'll look at verse 12. If you want to turn there real quick, that's fine, or if not, just listen. Revelation 17, verse 12 says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Verses 9 and 10 say this calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So, we're told that both the ten horns and the seven heads represent kings. And I would say in a physical, earthly manner. So it is clear that the beast, at least in one sense, must represent I would just say a confederation, a confederation of political leaders and or nations. But it's also clear from the context that the beast also represents the person who will head this alliance. Okay, it's a confederation, it's an alliance, but there's one overall overarching leader that is and will be the Antichrist, the beast from the sea. We see also that the Antichrist, this beast from the sea, is a composite of all four beasts. By the way, go back and read Daniel chapter 7. Daniel introduces us to four beasts, but the Antichrist will be a composite of all four 
of those beasts from Daniel. Verse 2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, while John receives much more detail and information about the identity of these heads and horns and diadems in chapter 17, uh, we see here that this, this beast possessed qualities of three distinct animals. And I'm not going to count them down, but there are three. Uh, the craftiness of a leopard, the brutality of a bear, and the strength and majesty of a lion. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, these animals represented three different and distinct kingdoms that previously ruled the world, Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon. And it seems likely that the seven heads may be the sum of those three heads plus the four heads of the fourth ferocious beast from Daniel chapter 7, which represented the Roman Empire. So each of those four kingdoms were powerful, they were ruthless, but the kingdom of the beast will be unlike anything and any kingdom the world has ever seen. Combining, I think, the worst attributes of all these previous world powers. So also we see in verses 3 and 4 that he recovers this, this beast from the sea. The Antichrist will recover from uh, what John says is a or will be a mortal wound. Let's read it real quick, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. His deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. Because of, of this event, they worshiped the dragon, but they also worshiped the beast, saying, man, who is like this beast? Who is able to make war with him? Um, so there will be an event. There something will happen which will make it appear, and I use that word very carefully and selectively, appear as if the Antichrist were killed, were fatally wounded, and then comes back to life. Now, why, will, why do I say it will appear? Because of exactly what John says. Uh, he says that I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And he didn't even say fatally wounded. There, there's a distinction in having a deadly wound, a mortal wound, or a fatal wound. Uh, so it appears as if, it appears as if he was died and rose again. It's, it's a very important distinction to understand and to make um, for what comes and what we will see in just a moment. So, it appears as if the Antichrist has recovered from a mortal wound. So that's, that's kind of who he is. Those are his attributes. Let's see his authority. Secondly, we'll see his authority. First of all, he will be empowered by Satan. Satan, the dragon, gives the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, his authority, his power. So it's not surprising at all um, that we see that in verse 2. Um, and... After all, the beast is the means by which the dragon, Satan, carries out his war against Israel and against the church, which we saw um, the prelude to in, verse, in chapter 12. But what is surprising, however, to me, is that the beast also will be given authority by God. God himself will allow this beast, 
the, the Antichrist to have a certain amount of, and for a certain period of time, the authority to do what he wants to do. In verses 5 through 8, we have ample evidence that the beast is given authority by God to carry out his activities. Um, a, a, a few statements. He is given a mouth to utter blasphemies. He is given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. He is allowed to exercise that authority for 42 months. And he is allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Now, since the scripture is very clear, just look at the life of Job, that Satan does not have the ability to grant any of those things, to grant that type of authority, there would have been a little doubt for John's readers and should be little doubt to us that God is the one who is giving this authority to the Antichrist, but only to do certain things and for a certain period of time. There are limits and restraints to his authority. Um, So that, that right there, that little part, of the story um, speaks volumes to me in that while it seems really bad, things aren't always as bad as they seem. Why? Because in the midst of Satan, through the Antichrist, through his warrior, making war against the woman, against the church, against Israel, against the true believers in that day against God himself and winning, seemingly winning and being on top at the time, God is still in control. So no no matter his plans, no matter how much he's advancing, God is still in control because he's given Satan only a limited amount of authority and a limited amount of time. So things aren't always as bad as they seem. So let's, let's look, next look at his activity. What, what is he up to? What is this beast going to be up to in the tribulation? Verses 5 through 8 gives us a good idea. He was given a mouth. Uh, we've already read that one. Speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. His tabernacle and those who dwell in them. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been found in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. So, let's kind of remember where we are in the wider narrative, in the grand scheme of things. Um, this, This narrative that began in chapter 12, remember chapters 12 through 15 is one long scene. So the dragon Satan hoped to devour the male child of the woman, the Messiah, but failed. Then he chased the woman, and she was given the wings of an eagle and fled into the wilderness to a place where God will nourish her for three and a half years, if you recall from chapter 12. And again, the dragon failed. He was furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her seed. Now look here at how he prepares for this war on the woman's seed. He summons up this beast from the sea that symbolizes some, some brutal dictatorial emperor or empire, we could say. And then he mimics, remember his, his wound appeared mortal, fatal. 
he mimics the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in response, the whole world worships Satan, thinks the beast is invincible. All this in preparation for the war that Satan is plotting against the seed of the woman in chapter 12. Now, having impersonated God and Christ in verses 1 through 4, we see in verses 5 through 8 that Satan will blaspheme God and kill Christians. So that's what he will be up to, the Antichrist in the tribulation. So first of all, let's, let's, uh, let's look at how he blasphemes God and his followers. We have a prelude to this from Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, whom we are talking about tonight who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, in some way, much like Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who openly and blatantly sacrificed a pig in the temple, uh, in some way, the Antichrist will openly and profanely blaspheme God in the very temple of God. Okay, it will be evident, and, and in, in this day and age where uh, you can see what's going on literally on the other side of the world in a moment's notice, um, it will be very easy to see this blasphemous action. Uh, so, And I think John's audience would certainly have been familiar um, with, how, with this concept um, with how the Roman government of their time usurped God uh, and, and blasphemed God when by giving their emperors um, a, a, a deity, you know, a name as if they were a deity. Uh, they took on titles that proclaimed that they were God. You know, but the Antichrist is going to take it a step further. And, and as we said, he will openly blaspheme God and God's word in his very temple. And he will also blaspheme God when he, he himself demands worship. And only God can do that. He will demand that people bow down and worship him. The Antichrist will demand the worship of everyone on earth. And as a result of the actions of the false prophet, who we'll see in just a moment, every person on earth, with the exception of the true Christ followers, will willingly give their worship to him. So we see that he blasphemes God. Um, he, uh, he demands that people worship him. But also we'll see that he wages war on believers. He wages war on believers. God will allow the Antichrist to wage war on the true believers in that day. But only up to a certain point, as we've mentioned already. Both the time period and the nature of that war are limited by God. He is still in control. Now, Jesus also refers to the limits placed on the Antichrist as he wages war against the believers in Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus said, and if those days had not been cut short, if there wouldn't have been a time limit, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Yeah, God, God puts a time limit on Satan's activities. So at least from a human perspective, though, the Antichrist will be incredibly successful and will conquer the saints. 
it, it is believed that quite literally almost the entirety of the church in that day, those true believers, will be wiped out at this time. But as we've already seen, and we'll see again, that apparent victory is short-lived because the death of the saint is merely the door by which they enter into an eternity spent face-to-face with Jesus. So that's the first beast, the beast from the sea, also known as the Antichrist, second part of this unholy trinity. Now let's meet in verses 11 through 18 the third part of the unholy trinity, the second beast, or the false prophet. We would call him the false prophet. So let's read quickly verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven and on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in uh, the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes, verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, the second beast will be referred to later on in the book of Revelation as the false prophet. And our passage makes it very clear as to why he's given that title. Now, if the sea represents the abyss or out of chaos and evil, the term from the earth most likely represents planet earth. Uh, Clearly, the second beast is a servant of the dragon, but his connections with the dragon are really not as obvious as those of the first beast. Um, so let's look real quickly at his mandate. What, what is he called up to do? Um, the, the main focus of his ministry or pseudo-ministry is to direct worship to the Antichrist. Not necessarily to the dragon, to Satan himself, but to the Antichrist. Verse 12 says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Um, now, we just saw the first beast who represented the Antichrist and, the, and the, the world alliance which he will control. The false prophet takes on more of a supporting role. Now, rather than direct attention to himself like the Antichrist does, uh, his actions are intended to get the world to worship the first beast. Um, I believe the false prophet will rely heavily upon the fact that we are, as man, hardwired with a need to worship something or someone. And so using the tools we'll look at in just a moment, he works behind the scenes to encourage people to direct this worship toward the Antichrist. And so what's his method? His main method is that of deception. That is deception. Um, not surprisingly, the method that the false prophet will employ is deception, which he learned well 
from the head of the Trinity, the unholy Trinity, Satan, who was identified back in chapter 12 as, if you remember, the one who deceives the whole world. Uh, That deception begins with his appearance. On the outside, he looks like a gentle lamb, much like many false prophets of our days. But on the outside, uh, he's described as the dragon. Uh, You know, he speaks like a dragon himself. Uh, Now, Jesus described uh, this as well, warning uh, of false prophets to his followers in Matthew 7. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, once again, things aren't always as good as they seem. He will outwardly seem like a true prophet of God. He will outwardly be attractive and pleasant, but things aren't always as good as they seem. Now, since Satan has operated by deception, beginning in the Garden of Eden, um, till today, we shouldn't be surprised at all that him and his minions will operate in that manner during the tribulation as well. And we certainly have plenty of historical evidence of Satan using this tactic of deception, i.e. Jim Jones, David Koresh, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, so in this passage, God reveals two means. We see his method we also see the means by which he accomplishes his method. Two things here uh, that will help him, the false prophet, accomplish this deception. First of all are signs. Signs. Uh, in verses 13 through 15, uh, he performs many signs, great signs. Um, in many ways, I think this false prophet will be uh, like the man behind the curtain in the wonderful world of Oz. You know, all talk, lots of smoke and flames, but a little bitty guy on the inside. He'll be able to perform great signs and do great things. He'll counterfeit what Elijah did when he called down fire from heaven. He'll create an image of the Antichrist, uh, a physical image, uh, and enable that image to speak and be able to kill the Christ followers who refuse to worship that image. He will do Great things. So it's, it's not hard to imagine while people are going to be easily duped into following someone who can perform great signs and great wonders. You know, I think that's why both Jesus and Paul in, in several instances specifically warned that in the end times there will be signs and wonders that are for the purpose of trying to deceive even those who are true believers. So what's the other thing, the other means by which he'll accomplish this? That's a seal. Great signs and then a seal. We know this as the mark of the beast. Uh, Verses 16 through 18 um, specifically spells that out. Now, in an effort to promote worldwide domination and worship for the Antichrist, the false prophet will institute some form of marking or branding that will allow those who receive the mark to participate in societal activities. Buying a loaf of bread at the store, gas for your car, clothes uh, clothes to wear, your home, you name it. Buying and selling any form of societal function will have to be transacted through this mark or by this mark. 
all kinds of speculation. We don't even, we don't even have time or days to go there. All kinds of speculation as to what that could be. Um, they have the technology today to put a little bitty chip in everybody's uh, wrist in the world that could very well accomplish this idea. Um, it might be a tattoo. Who knows? We don't know what form it will take, but it will be an obvious outward sign that's very visible to the rest of the world that, hey, I've got the mark. I am tattooed. I am signed. I am marked. Um, And there will be many that don't take the mark. And we will see um, in future chapters what happens to them. Uh, but most of the world will will receive this mark out of worship, admiration, adoration to the Antichrist, to this unholy trinity. Now, verse 18, and we will end here. Now, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, what, what this mark will be, and who it represents, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, I know that for many of you, this is what you've been waiting for, uh, the revelation of the identity of the Antichrist. Um, But if that's the case, that's why you came. Uh, Having read through chapter 13 before you got here, you're going to be greatly disappointed. I haven't a clue. Nor should you, nor should Brother Bobby, nor should any of us here. We, we, we honestly don't know. Now, over the years, there have been countless attempts to identify the Antichrist based on the number of his name. Now, most of these efforts are based on a practice known as, here's a big word for today, gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. And that's basically uh, using uh, letters as numbers. Okay, uh, We have the concept of Roman numerals uh, in in ancient times, letters of the alphabet were used as numbers. They served as numbers. So, over the years, various um, commentators, not so commentators, have attempted to identify the Antichrist by converting the names of what would be their favorite suspects into a number and seeing if it would add up to 666. Among those who have been identified over the years, as the Antichrist include Nero, uh, Hitler, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, Prince Charles, Barack Obama, you name it. There is literally an infinite list. And I did the math on my name this afternoon. I have exactly 18 letters in my full name. So it very well could be me. Six plus six plus six. So you never know. But that, that's how silly it seems to be. So if we kind of stand back and take a look at the bigger picture, what does 666 mean then? Well, six in the Bible is the number of a man. Number of man, not a man. The number of man, mankind. Man was created on the sixth day. For example, the the number six also pictures the sinfulness of man since the number six falls short of seven. You know, seven has been seen as the number of perfection, seven days of creation. Um, 
We've seen the Holy Spirit pictured as the seven spirits of God, and Jesus pictured as lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. So, who is the Antichrist? Well, um, let's just let two, two commentators answer that question for us tonight. Stephen Nichols said, I think that neither the identity of the Antichrist nor the number of his names name will be evident until he appears and fulfills prophecy. Then, wise believers will be able to calculate his number as well as identify his person. Until then, both aspects of Antichrist's identity will in all likelihood remain a mystery. And J. Vernon McGee said, put it this way, I would suggest that we not waste our time trying to identify a person by this number. Instead, we need to present Jesus Christ that we might reduce the population of those who have to go through the Great Tribulation period and who will therefore know what the number of the beast is. So, why does, this, why does all this matter to us today? Why uh, we're talking about an unholy trinity and that, that God is still in control. Things aren't always as bad as they seem and things aren't always as good as they seem. Um, well, we'll just put it this way. You know, while we don't know, and Paul, Paul puts it this way, and we'll kind of close with this, I and mean, John does, uh, in 1 John 4, while we don't know who the Antichrist will be, John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We have no idea. God does not reveal some things to us. We have no idea who the Antichrist will be. And although the Antichrist with a big A may not be on the scene yet, I believe Satan probably always has somebody available and ready to be the capital A Antichrist. But while we don't know, and he may not be on the scene yet, we do know that throughout history, um, there have always been those who embody the spirit of the Antichrist with a little a. So, even though most of us, and I pray and hope that most of us, this evening will not still be here on this earth when the capital A Antichrist comes to power. We still have to deal with the spirit of Antichrist every day in our lives. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Paul said it best, and Steve, you'll like this, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. We looked at it this morning in Sunday school. Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly or wisely, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So stay busy and stay wise. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for your word and how it, uh, how it cautions us and how it, um, uh, it, it shapes our thinking and how it warns us, Lord, I, I, things that we look at in Revelation are sometimes scary and uh, sometimes confusing, Lord. Uh, I pray that, one, you would help us to 
to understand how it applies to our daily lives. And Lord, we're, we're, we're confident and we're thankful that no matter how confusing and bad uh, our life gets on a day-to-day basis and how it seems like that Satan is, is winning the battles, that you are still in control and that there is a limit uh, to his authority in our lives and there's a time limit as to which as to how much he can uh, have certain dominion and how he can influence our lives and God we're, we're so thankful that you're still in control and we're also thankful that that your word helps us to uh, to point out the discrepancies and to point out the false prophets and the 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 spirit of the Antichrist not only in our days but you will help other believers in that time where it would be so critical and so crucial to be wise. And so thank you that the Spirit lives in us and gives us wisdom, but help us, Lord, to be wise. Help us to rely on on his voice in our lives, to know which way to go and not go, and and who to follow and not follow. So, Lord, uh, this evening, uh, I pray that you would encourage us and that you would have your way and your will in our lives. And help this this idea and, and this lesson to be an impetus, a motivation, uh, just like J. Merton McGee said, that, that it would cause us to, uh, to preach Jesus, Lord, so that there will be fewer and fewer here that will have to make that decision, that will have to be wise and understand who the Antichrist is. And so... Lord, help us to use uh, our time wisely to enlist others in your kingdom, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.